every time us, Guinness, uh, who's a, one of the greatest Christian apologists in the world, a uh, great man of God, uh, when he, he lives here in the area. When he writes a book, he, um, he gives me a copy. Uh, and so when the author gives you a copy of his book, the next time you meet them, you know what the next question is going to be, right? <laughs> hey, did you read? Uh, oh, oh, it was awesome. Yeah, you, you can't lie to the, the author. So uh, he keeps me busy because I asked him the other day when we were at dinner together a couple weeks ago, I said, uh, how many books do you write? I mean, it's like I'm trying, you know, I'm busy enough. Well, he, uh, several years ago, 2014, he gave me a book uh, called Renaissance, subtitled The Power of the Gospel, However Dark the Time. Uh, the appropriate book. Uh, and you need to read this book. And, and, and I know I keep you busy reading books, telling you read this, read that. You need to read this one. And it's a short book, maybe 140 pages. This is God's will for you. It's not like some 800-page tome. Uh, and he has, I read it right away when I, he gave it to me uh, to learn, you know, what, what could I learn from this uh, as a pastor? There's a, one section pops out to me. Here's, here's what it says. He says, when followers of Jesus live out the gospel in the world, as we're called to do, we become an incarnation of the truth of the gospel and an expression of the character and the shape of its truth. He then adds, it is this living in truth that proves culturally powerful. Sermon's over. Let's go to, let's go to Spartans for a brunch, you know? I mean, that's basically it, right? I mean, he dropped the mic on that. It's like, if you want to turn a, a, a godless culture around, a culture that has all kinds of issues and sin, how do you do it? Uh, can you vote it in? No, you can't vote it in. Um, you, you, you need to, to vote Jesus into the culture. How do, they, how do they see Jesus? Well, they see Jesus in you. And that's what he's saying. They see the gospel, the power of the gospel to change your life. Hard to argue with a radically changed life. And so he's, he's saying if you want to take the gospel and, and do great things with it, then just let the world around you see Jesus uh, living inside your life and, and how you act and behave, and that's going to change things. Um, we're that kind of church. We're trying to change ourselves. Uh, and, and as we change ourselves by the power of God, uh, we then draw, draw the lost to us because they're going to come to you and want to know, what is uniquely different about your life that I don't have in mind? Uh, and uh, could you tell me what that is? Because I've had non-Christians ask me that. Uh, and it's that power of the gospel that turns things around. Uh, how do you think the devil feels about it? Is he amused? No, no, he's alarmed. Because he sees uh, that when the gospel gets into a situation through a devout Christian living out the gospel, uh, he, he's losing people. Uh, and he didn't want to lose people. So uh, he has many things in his bag of tricks. Uh, one of them is infiltration. So he goes to the source. He goes to a church where the gospel is preached, where the word of God is taught. He infiltrates that church with really nice people who are very articulate typically. Uh, and they, they come in with false teaching. And they get that church to buy into that false teaching in incremental fashion. Never in a large fashion. Because any Christian would see it, correct? As we've talked about. We, if we heard heretical doctrine, we'd all point to it and go, Heresy! No, he sneaks in. And that's what he did in the churches of Asia Minor. They snuck in. They infiltrated those churches uh, in Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey, uh, and they wreaked havoc. They split churches. They caused Christians to leave. They got Christians to be uh, uh, misled in what they thought about uh, living out the gospel. They brought in false doctrine and, and, and just decimated those churches. Well, he's the pastor of those churches, as I've told you for the last few months. He's trying to get those churches back to truth, back to health, and he's in his 90s doing it. So if you're, I would say, if you're over 80 right now, if you think God is finished with you, think again, because some of the greatest things that God does is when people uh, in their lives, is when they're older and they have great maturity and wisdom to share. That's John. 
So this book is an unusual book. It's not a normal book to, to preach because he kind of meanders around like your grandpa talking to you. You know, when you, you, you know, what did grandpa tell you? I, I don't know, a whole bunch of things. Uh, and so he's your grandpa talking to you. So as we've looked at this chapter, he's trying to, to take these churches to show them the power of the gospel, which these false teachers are getting you to diminish, and the power of a changed life. And he's doing it in a very dark, dismal time in the Roman Empire. So we've been looking at this for several weeks. What does bold belief look like in trying times? That's the main motif of the, of the passage that goes from chapter 2, verse 28, to chapter 4, verse 19. That block of thinking addresses that one question. So you would expect, if your grandpa's talking to you as a pastor, he's sharing with you how to live a bold Christian life, whether you're on the university campus, you're at the Pentagon, wherever you are, how do you do that? Well, we've already covered uh, seven things that he has clicked through. I won't go through them again. Uh, I don't know if we have a slide. We might have a slide just to show you what they are in case you weren't here. We'll pray for them. Is there a football game on right now? There's nothing on right now, right? Yes, bold belief. All right, so there, I guess there isn't. So we covered seven motifs, and they're online if you want to look at them. Uh, but he's going to add number eight to that list. So he's just sharing what's coming to mind. How do you live a bold life in a, in a compromised situation? Well, he says bold belief steers clear of falsity. Because if the devil can get you to believe a false version of the gospel, to water it down, to buy into some cultural concept of redemption and salvation, uh, you just lost the power of the gospel to transform the culture. And so it steers clear of falsity. So notice what he says in verses 7 and 8. Let's read them. He said, in the New American Standard and then NIV, you can see the differences and similarities between them. So he's over 90, calling them little children, rightly so because of his age. Little children, uh, he said, I have a command for you. Let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness, that person's righteous, uh, just as he, Jesus, is righteous. Um, this is a very interesting uh, verse uh, in, in the, the Greek text in the New Testament because that's the language that the scriptures originally were in. Um, what you have here when he says, let no one deceive you, you have a negative no, uh, wedded, and that's just for our, our students at Dallas Seminary who know what that is. If you don't know what that is, that's okay. Um, but what you have here is a negative, uh, and I'll just show it to you in case you just want to know for... I think, oh, I just turned everything off. Wait just a minute. That's, that's the next, this is technia's children. So no one is this word. Uh, palanato is the command. It's a present tense command wedded to a negative. And I've told you this before. It's test time. I'll tell you again. If you have a negative wedded to a present tense command, it's trying to do what? Do you remember? Oh, this is your first Sunday? Yeah. You're trying to stop an action in progress. If it's a negative wedded to an aorist subjunctive, you're stopping, you're trying to prohibit an action to ever even begin. This is extremely important to understand. Like, why are we studying the grammar? Because it's, it's that important. He, this is a present tense command wedded to a negative verb, verb, meaning they were being deceived. You follow me? They were being deceived. If you're sitting there thinking, eh, there's no way a Christian could be deceived, you better think again. Because his command is a negative command wedded to a present tense telling you they were being deceived. And so what does their pastor tell them? Stop getting deceived by people who are talking to you, giving things you know, about the theological concepts that have got nothing to do with truth. So you have to stop and ask yourself a question. Is there anybody speaking into my life that I have trusted, that I brought into my life, that is getting me to move away from sound teaching and truth? And if so... I must move away from them because they're distorting my thinking about the gospel and diminishing its power. So th think about that. 
So, is it possible for a saint to get doctrinally duped? Yeah, yeah. You just have to take a quick perusal through the New Testament to validate the point. The Galatian church, Galatians chapter 1, Paul comes to them and says, I cannot believe that you have been duped by, by uh, false teachers. He says, though we or an angel of light should appear to you and tell you a gospel different than the one that we gave you, let that person be accursed. I mean, Paul was kind of in their face. You know, so a pastor should be loving, kind, merciful, etc. Sometimes you've got to treat wolves like wolves. And he says, if you teach a different gospel, you should be accursed, anathema in the Greek. So what had happened? When you study the book of Galatians, so you should read it and study it sometime, those Galatian believers were being duped by false teaching. Uh, same thing when you get to the book of Colossians. Read and study it. Uh, another kind of Gnosticism was invading the church there. And, and Paul, again, addresses the Gnosticism. So what is a, the role of a pastor? Many things. One of them is to know the truth of the word of God. It's the ultimate measurement of, of what is truth. And anything that deviates from that, call attention to that. Because that would be heretical teaching. And so that's what uh, we find when we read the New Testament, that, well, believers were being duped by false systems of belief. So in the Gnostic teaching, uh, Gnosis, remember, means to know, knowledge, esoteric knowledge. And if you're part of our little in-the-group knowing over here, then you're really going to be going to heaven. Because we, as Gnostics of the day, believe what matters is what's in the mind, not the body. So the mind is, makes all the decisions, and it doesn't really matter what you do with your body because uh, that's not going to be important in eternity. So you can be as evil and enjoy as much sin with your body as you want to because all God cares about is the inner man. Really? Uh, what they said, if you remember, in chapter 1, verse 5, was in God dwells light and darkness. Logically impossible. You can't have light and darkness, good and evil, in the same being as God because they're diametrically opposed to each other. But that's what they taught. And a lot of times, if you just take simple rules of logic and apply it to whatever it is that people are telling you, it, you uh, your baloney meter will go off. And you're like, that's a totally not true. Because I put your system of thinking in just simple complex or simple statements of, of what is logical, and it doesn't drive. I can't drive this car. How could God be both evil and good uh, at the same time? Impossible. But that's what they taught. So what you should do as a Christian, you should naturally live out the gospel in your life and be righteous because it says here, the one who is, does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. So you should live out the gospel. So a Christian should naturally re represent your father. They could look at you and go, man, they, they totally have to be a Christian. Why? Look at them. I mean, listen to them. I mean, etc. I mean, they're happy. It's an adverse time. It, whatever the situation, they should be able to see that you are a Christian. But remember, it's possible for a Christian to not look like a Christian. Perhaps you had a moment this week where you didn't look like a Christian. Really, why are you laughing? Because it's true, isn't it? I mean, is there, did you do anything this week that you're ashamed of and you think, I cannot believe I did that? See, now no one's going to raise their hand now. Oh yeah, that's me. So he's saying, you know, don't, don't let anybody lead you astray. The one who does what is righteous is righteous, just as he is righteous. But it's possible for a Christian to not do that because you have a self-will. Paul talks about this in Romans 7. That which I want to do, I do not. But sin who, which dwells in me sometimes gets a victory. What's the goal of the Christian? To live, and we talked about this last week, if you were here, to live in light of my position, which is holy. My practical life matches that more often than not. Then you grow up in Christ. But we live in a, in a culture, uh, we could spend the rest of the morning talking about false, false systems brought into the church. Uh, I'll, I'll touch on one of you, one, one of them. And when you touch on false doctrine that's masquerading as true doctrine, 
Uh, it doesn't mean everybody's going to be happy with me. <laughs> Welcome to my job. Uh, so I, I bumped into this the other day when I was uh, at lunch reading, and I'm like, huh? you got to be kidding me. So the Presbyterian News Service uh, recently uh, spruced up the old hymn, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise. Now, I'll tell you how they spruce it up, but I'll first, in case you don't know, do you know this hymn? I'll just repeat it to you in case you don't know the old hymn. It goes like this. Immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light inaccessible, hid from our eyes. Most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days, almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise. What they did is they took it and they changed it. And you can see it talks about God. I mean, he's the unresting, the unhasting, the silent as light, the not wanting nor wasting, thou rulest in might, thy justice like mountains, high soaring above thy clouds, which are fountains of goodness and love. And on and on it goes. Great hymn about the greatness of God. What did they use it for? They used it for the UN climate change. Did, did you hear me? Are you with me? So I'm eating lunch and reading this. I'm going, hmm, this should be interesting. They changed the hymn. Here's what they changed it to. The climate is changing. Creation cries out. Your people face flooding and fire and drought. We see the great heat waves and storms at their worst. We pray for the poor Lord. They suffer first. We pray for the animals here in our midst. We cannot defend their own right to exist. We pray for the mountains and the forests and the seas that bear the harsh footprint of our human greed. Blah, 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 blah. I'm reading this. My sandwich is on the table. I'm like... Huh? Is our problem climate change? Well, no. Our problem is sin change. Did you hear me? See, they, they, they just, so, so in, that, in this popular cultural thing, what is the sin? Well, the sin is uh, climate pollution. That's the sin. What's the, the, the solution to that? We've we got to repent of fossil fuels. Do you see how this is twisted? See, our problem isn't, isn't, that's not the problem. The problem is man is the sinner and he needs to repent of his sin before the all-living God who is all immortal and wise and will judge accordingly. That's the problem. But what's the devil do? Oh, I got to give you a moral issue to hang on to so you feel good about yourself. And so uh, don't, don't hang on to that gospel thing. Let me give you another little gospel over here. Man, we got we to quit driving cars. We got we to fix the planet. We gotta... And then all of a sudden, you're not thinking about the gospel. Do you see what I mean? It's the great switch that the devil does. It's the same type of thing that he did in their churches, just with a different topic. Uh, now, if you're upset at me and mad at me, just take it up with God. I'm just telling you how the devil operates. I'm not here to debate climate change and all that. My job is to preach the gospel. This is a false gospel. You with me? Thank you. Moving on. Verse 8. John says, um, well, the one who practices sin is of the devil. Uh, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose. What's the purpose? Well, that, that word that there is called a hint clause in Greek. And it denotes uh, the purpose of why Jesus came. Why did Jesus come? That he might destroy the works of the devil. What are his works? Well, anything evil. Contrary to God, Jesus came to put, put that to an end. Uh, to pay for sin on the cross so that we might get saved. Uh, but John here says, if you are a person, Christian or non-Christian, and you practice sin as a lifestyle, uh, that's of the devil. Here's a question. Is it possible for a Christian to sin and look like a devil's child? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you don't think so, well, consider Peter. Jesus told him, Peter, 
before this night's over, you're going to deny me three times. Remember that? And, and Peter then, not me, Lord. And, and he did, didn't he? Peter was also the one. you got to love Peter. He was just a man in the raw. I mean, he just was boom, boom. He just thought first and just picked up the pieces later. Uh, you know, when, when Jesus is telling the disciples he's going to go to the cross and, you know, die for the sins of the world, uh, Peter's rebuking the Lord. Now, not on my watch are you going to the cross. Not on my watch are you going to die. And Jesus looks at Peter and tells Peter, get thee behind me. Who? Satan. Satan. He says, you are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Okay, who was he talking to in the flesh? Peter. But who was he talking to? Satan, who was trying to influence Peter. So it goes back to the fact that when John says, if you practice sin, do you look like a devil's child? It's possible for a Christian to do that. You have to stop and ask yourself, if I want to live the boldness of the gospel, I have to be careful what theology I'm buying into and what it's doing to my faith uh, and um, how am I living because if I'm not living in light of that gospel and I'm sinning because I'm willfully choosing to do it as a Christian, then I am dragging the Lord's name through the mud. Uh, and it's as if I belong to Satan when I really don't, but it looks that way. Put it this way. What are you doing that makes you look like the devil's child and not God's child? That's the thing you need to repent of. And trust me, I have to look at this all week before I come and talk to you about it. So if you're looking at me going, yeah, he needs to get his act together. No, I already dealt with this this week. And so uh, what does bold belief look like? It's a belief that gets away from falsity. So what have I bought into that I need to park and move back towards truth? Number two, second point of my last point. Uh, bold belief lives for brotherly love, verses 10 to 15. This is uh, very convicting stuff. Bold belief lives for brotherly love. Uh, he says, by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. What's the test? Well, anyone who does not practice righteousness is not a God, uh, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, let's think about this. There should be, a, there should be, there not always is, there should be a radical difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. I mean, there should be radical difference between you. Uh, and uh, you should be uh, living the mor moral code of the, of, the, of the scriptures. That should be evident in your life. Because a non-Christian, they don't believe they're accountable to God. They're just accountable to themselves. And they can pick and choose like what they want to do morally. But you believe you're going to stand before God one day and give account. And so there should be a radical difference between you and a non-Christian. But John says here, how do you know the difference between a child of God and a child of the devil? Well, it's, it's the one who practices righteousness and the one who loves his brother. But I have a question. Um, it, if this is a test for salvation, which some say that it is, but I believe it's not a test for salvation. Uh, if it's a test for salvation, then my question is simple. Who could be saved? Did you hear me? Who could be saved if that's a test for salvation? Well, what do you mean? I, I don't get that abstract concept. Let's think about it. Break it down. If this is a test for salvation, you must practice righteousness to be saved. How well did you perform righteousness this week? Did you blow it? God is absolutely holy. So one sin, it's over. And then it says, uh, if, you, if it says for righteousness you, righteousness, you must also love your Christian brother or sister. Did you? Did you consistently? Because if you blew it any time this week, if this is a test for salvation, you just lost that salvation. See, I don't think it's a test for salvation. He's just, he's just a grandpa as a spiritual father talking to his children saying, you know, don't live like the devil. Live like God has called you to live like. Uh, and he says, it's obvious if you're living for God, just look at your life. 
I think that's what he's saying. Uh, can, can Christians really get off kilter? Sure. Yeah, I mean, they can. Um, James chapter 2. Listen to what they did in this church. Notice what James says. This is, the, this is the Lord's brother writing this. And as I said before, could you imagine if your brother was Jesus? I mean, think about the home life. God, he never does anything wrong. So here, you know, James gets saved. In fact, I would say James is one of the greatest testimonies of why you would want to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. If your brother, who doesn't believe you're the Messiah, gets saved after your resurrection, you must have raised from the dead. And that was James. Let's, let's get into what James says here. He's castigating the Christians at this church. Notice what he says. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, what's the royal law? You should love your neighbor as yourself. He says, you're doing well if you do that. Notice there's a contrast. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law of, by the, of the transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law, yet stumbles in one point, has be, become guilty of all. You blow one commandment, they all just went out the door. And he says, uh, what's, the great, what's one of the great commandments? Well, we know the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. That's a tough one. So he says, if you want to live a bold life in a very trying time, we'll just love your Christian brothers and sisters. It's not simple. Why are you getting so quiet? Because some of them are not nice. Some of them have issues. Some of them say things that are like offensive. I mean, he says, you know, you need to love them. Because in James, what they were, what they were doing in that church, if you came in and you're driving a Porsche Turbo Carrera, oh yeah, there's a brother in Christ right there. Well, that other person in the Prius, mm, they're into that climate stuff. We, they're totally not Christians. That kind of thing. Does it matter what they're driving? No, God doesn't care. And, and, and in heaven, we're not going to be driving anything like that. You know, I don't think there's even vehicles there. You won't need them, but they're showing partiality. Guy comes in in a Porsche like, hey, hey, welcome, my brother. We'll give you the best house in the best seat in the house. Oh, and you came in a Prius? Oh, it's too bad for you. You're going to be up in the nosebleed section. That's where we're going to put you. James comes along and says, what are you people doing? You're not supposed to show partiality. God doesn't show partiality. You're supposed to love your brother. It doesn't matter who your brother is, whether they have 10 bucks in the bank or 10 million in the bank. If they're a brother in Christ, you're to love them. Because if you don't love your Christian brother and sister, how are you going to love who? The unsaved. So don't tell me that a Christian can't act like the devil, and they can do it at church. That's what they're doing here. So you have to ask yourself some you know, personal questions. I did. Is there anything you're doing toward another believer that makes you appear that you don't love them? Did you hear me? You doing anything... If you're sitting here wondering, what did he talk about today? Are you listening to me? Is there anything you're doing that does not resemble Christian living, Christ? And if there is, you have your finger on it right now. Don't, don't be looking at me, who you're supposed to be looking at. Yourself. Is there anything that I'm doing that doesn't reflect Christian brotherly love? Because that's sin. So um, did, have you done anything subversive? vindictive, cunning, selfish, thoughtless, mean-spirited, cold, uncaring. It's a long list. God, am I, have I done any of those things? Because if you have, you might need to ask God to forgive you. Remember 1 John 1, 9? If you confess, he's faithful to 
forgive you of your sin, wash you from unrighteousness, and restore your fellowship with him. And then you probably need to go to that person and tell them what? I am so sorry. I haven't shown love to you. And I, I want to ask your forgiveness, and I want to show love to you. And it starts today. Uh, Jesus talked about this um, in the book of John. Uh, we read, uh, for this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Uh, this is what Jesus talks about. John chapter 13. Jesus said in verse 34, I give you a new commandment uh, to love one another, even as I have loved you, that you should love one another. By this will all men know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Notice it's a conditional clause. Why? You have a free will. Because you can just say, well, there's just, <laughs> there's just some Christians, I don't, I don't like them, you know? And, oh, I like them. I don't like them. What, it's conditional. What did Jesus say? Well, no, love like I loved. How did he love? Unconditional love. Didn't care who you were. Didn't matter what your IQ were. Didn't matter what kind of camel you drove or didn't drive. I mean, he loved you no matter what. That's why people flock to Jesus. Unconditional love. And Jesus says, before I go to the cross, I just want to make sure that you understand you're supposed to love each other. In fact, go read his high priestly prayer in John 18. He continues to talk about this. He knew it would be the issue for the church. Why? Our church has 3,000 people in it, roughly. You bring 3,000 people together uh, in a church, and boy, they are all going to get along and just love each other to death. Uh, no, no, they're, they're going to bring all their sin and their baggage and all their issues and their problems and everything in the church. And God has blessed our church with great unity. Uh, and, and, and has, but it doesn't mean we're perfect. But we have to work at loving each other. It takes work. It takes work. So love should always prevail uh, because that's what Jesus uh, called us to. It's the power of the gospel. Uh, it shouldn't be uh, like what happened with Cain and Abel. What happened with him? He says in verse 12, well, uh, not as Cain, who was the evil one, and slew his brother, and for that reason did, he, for what reason did he slay him? Well, he slew him because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So Cain kills Abel. Why? He's envious over the fact that God accepted Abel's sacrifice blood sacrifice, and rejected his vegetable sacrifice. So you have to understand that Cain and Abel must have known that they had to bring blood sacrifice to cover sin if they were going to worship God. Because God accepts one son's sacrifice and not the other. And they had to know this because when their parents sinned, um, the, the Lord is the one who slew an animal to cover them in their nakedness. Because prior to that, uh, they weren't covered with clothes. The clothing thing was for sin. And how'd that happen? Well, he had to kill an animal. God did it. So they knew. And, and, and Cain is, uh, I'm progressive in my worship of God. You know, I've been doing that sacrifice thing for a whole long time. And perhaps God will like the vegetables from the field. Uh, you can see how well that went over. Uh, you do not deviate with God. What God says is what you do. Uh, and he accepted one, not the other. So the motivation for the murder, and the first murder in the world, was between two brothers. I didn't have a brother. I had two sisters that I wanted to take out a few times. Did you? <laughs> you know, we lived. It's amazing. But did you have siblings? Did you have issues with your... And it was always their problem, right? It was never you. You know, here you had two brothers. And the, what's the core of their problems? Envy. Well, I, 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 I wanted the blessing from God. I, I can't... I, I want the notoriety from God. It was envy. And so he took out his brother. Killed him. Killed him. And you could say the first murder in the, in the Bible was between two, two, between two brothers, and it was all regarding religion, how you approach God. Wow. Amazing. So let's look at the, those, two, those two brothers, Cain and Abel. Uh, 
couple of things to think about. Number one, brotherly love is utterly destroyed uh, when there's an internal feeling of sin. Because that's what happened here. I mean, uh, as you're in our body of Christ, when you develop an internal ill will feeling towards somebody for whatever, that ill will can become a root of bitterness that grows up in you and colors everything that you think, destroys your joy, and destroys your relationships with those people. Because that's what happened here. And we know from what Jesus says about hate, if it gets to the point where you hate that person, you can't stand them, you're consumed with them, uh, Jesus, go read him in Matthew 5, Jesus says if you hate somebody, it's equivalent to murder. You just murdered them. So you got to ask yourself another personal question. Sorry to mess with your life today, but <laughs> is there anybody in this body, before God, I just got to say, I, I, just, I just, I don't like them. I have a problem with them. You know, uh, is, is that the case? Then um, it's not meaning you can't confront based on facts and things like that. But I mean, just, you know, an, an unfounded dislike and a hatred toward them. Because this is what destroys relationships. And, and John says, the way the church is powerful is when it loves each other. You got to ask yourself, God, put in my place, in my heart, not ill will, but, but a love that, is, that comes from you in this situation. Number two, the brotherly dysfunction between Cain and Abel is a perfect description of the way some non-Christians respond to Christians. They don't like what you represent. Uh, this is what he says in verse 13 of uh, chapter 3 of 1 John. Do not marvel, brethren, if the world does what? Hate you. Hate you. Don't be shocked. Don't be shocked. Why? Well, Jesus tells you in John 15. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Don't be shocked when the world hates you. Like Cain hated his brother. It was all over religion. It's, it's like Abel came the right way and Cain came the wrong way. See, they will hate you. Why did they hate Jesus? Why they hate Jesus? Well, he called sin, sin. He couldn't stand hypocrisy. Go read Matthew 23. He couldn't, he couldn't tolerate fake believers. Um, he believed that truth never changed. That's why he said, I am the way, truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Truth never changes. You know, um, he didn't uh, look favorably on those who rationalized their sins. I mean, Anna, they, they couldn't stand Jesus because he represented truth. And so they hated him to the point where they took him to the cross. And Jesus himself tells you, as you're trying to work out brotherly love in the body of Christ, uh, recognize that, uh, uh, you know, the world might hate you in the process. Like our church is a, is a beacon of great light in a very dark part of the country. But God has done great things in and through this church. Why? Because there's love here. There's love. And we have to work at love, don't we? Just like in a relationship, we have to work at it. But people see love here. I had a, I had a lady come in one day, a new lady, first Sunday, and I walked up to her. And, and I don't know, always know if they're new. A lot of times I walk up and say, hi, how are you? Your first Sunday? No, I've been here for five years. Um, <laughs> so I asked her, I said, you know, you know, uh, you know, why are you here? She goes, I don't know. I, I just feel love here. That's, a, that's the greatest thing, you know. So what are you doing to produce love within this body? And don't be afraid when the world doesn't like you. Um, it just comes with the turf. John, uh, verse 14, John says, we know that we as Christians have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not uh, love abides in death. Again, I don't think he's uh, talking definitively about, about, again, a test for a Christian. Because it's all conditional. Your love of another Christian uh, shows you whether you're walking closely with Jesus or not. Um, but you, you know that you're, 
you're following after Christ when you love the brethren. If I choose not to love the brethren on any given day, then I am looking like the devil's child again. So the object is to consistently love the brothers and sisters God's put into my life. He says in verse 15, and we close with this, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Uh, do murderers go to heaven? Do they? He just said, if you have no murderers in heaven. Uh, well, think about David. <laughs> What'd he do? He went after another man's wife, and he, that guy got in his way, so he put him in a forward position, so he purposely would get picked off and killed in battle so he could go marry his wife. Nothing wrong with that, right? <laughs> Sin of the tallest order. Adultery and murder. You think David's in heaven? Yeah, why? Because he repented. Repented murderers are going to be in heaven. What's John talking about? He, he's talking about a non-repentant person. You know, they don't repent. The blood of Christ doesn't cover that sin. But he said, if you're a, you're a brother, don't, don't act like a non-Christian who won't repent, because we know they're not going to heaven. But he says, don't, don't be so hateful that, that, it, that, it, that it looks like you're the murderer before God. Love those about you. So I ask you again a personal question. Do I love the brothers and sisters in this church? Because that will make us a great force in this culture to turn people to Christ. It all, it's about, not about doctrine, not about apologetics. It's, a, it's about the word of God and the gospel living out through our lives. So I'm going to give you a couple things to think about, as I already gave you a couple things to think about. Some more. What does brotherly love look like? Okay, I'll leave you with this. And this is not exhaustive. Brotherly love. I don't do things to purposely hurt somebody else. Two, I present you as a Christian brother or sister in the best possible light. Three, I sacrifice for you Uh, even if you're not the, the nicest person. Uh, I help your emotional, spiritual, and practical needs when I can. Uh, I welcome your admonition when it's based on facts to grow up in Christ. And I would assume you would accept my admonition based on facts. That's mutual love for each other. Uh, I squelch gossip about you. Uh, I do pray for you. I do tell you that I love you when I get opportunity. When you hurt, I truly do hurt. Uh, I love you even when you wrong me. I forgive and I restore you and humble myself before you when we're restored. I really do enjoy your company. Uh, I go out of my way to make your life easier when I can do it. Uh, I am, well, you can fill in the blanks. At my last church, uh, when we were building our nursery at our converted grocery store into a church, um, we were all excited. First building, it's a grocery store, it's cool. We've got truck bays, it's awesome. Show me a church with truck bays. We had them. Deliveries would come. Like, where do you want it? Uh, bay number two. Um, when, we do, when we built the nursery, um, we had a nursery committee. Every church does. What color? What kind of wallpaper? You know, blue, pink, what? So they decided, you know, what they wanted. So the ladies went in, took the whole new nursery that we built in the grocery store when we converted it, built a beautiful room, uh, decorated it and everything, walk, rocking chair, the whole shebang. Um, there was a lady, a wealthy lady in our church, who didn't like the color choices. So since her family was in the leadership structure of our church, she had keys. She came in on a weekend and took down all the wallpaper, put primer over all the paint, and painted it her color. How do you think that went over? Shocking what Christians will do. She was envious that they got their color and she didn't. So she made a point to redo it her color. 
See, this, this, is, this keeps a pastor in, employed. <laughs> was this brotherly love? No. It wasn't brotherly love. Are you doing anything that's not based in love for other people in the body of Christ? That lady didn't. But they worked it out in due time. And, and we need to work those things out. May God bless you as you live for Christ this week. Let's stand and pray and give God thanks. God, thank you for the practicality of the word of God. Uh, it is convicting, if anything. We all individually must look and say, Lord, is it I? Is there anything I need to do there? Long before we go to another brother or sister, we have to get right with you. And we pray that we might walk so closely with you, the power of the gospel will be readily seen to those about us. And we pray that our love for each other might be the thing that we're known for. And we just pray for ourselves this day that we might be Christ and that those who don't know Christ will come to know him uh, as they see uh, his power living in and through us. Uh, Bless us this day, dear Lord, to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.